Welcome, everyone, to the Religious Learning Program. Today we have with us, once again, Jonathan Burke. Um, recently, he had a debate with uh, Sir Anthony Buzzard uh, about whether or not uh, Satan, devil, demons are literal uh, personal beings, or whether or not they, they're personifications, or they represent something that is not uh, a literal personal being. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Thanks, Cam. Great to be here again. So, how uh, how did this debate get started? Is it something that Anthony Buzzard, you know, reached out to you and asked you to do? Well, he belongs to a church called Church of God General Conference, and for a very long time, they have been aware of my community, the Christadelphians, and there's been quite a bit of interaction between our communities over the years. And as it happens, somebody in his community found one of my papers online on the subject of Satan demons, and they thought it was interesting and worth reading, and they handed it around to a few other people, and that generated sufficient interest among some people to prompt the question of, hey, would this guy like to debate Anthony? Maybe we could get this guy to debate Anthony. Some of them were also aware that I had corresponded with Anthony in the past on this subject. I think the last time I'm, I corresponded with him in detail was quite a way back now, maybe 2004, 2006 might have been something like that, but a very long time ago anyway. So they were very interested to see if I would be interested in discussing this with him and finding out my latest views. So I was actually approached by them asking me if I would like to discuss this with Anthony in the form of a, a formal debate. And so I said yes. And just for the listeners who aren't aware of these two communities, uh, and I think Jonathan will agree with me, there's a lot of mutual respect between us and Anthony Buzzard as far as the you know overall beliefs. They're, we're pretty similar in a lot of things. And this is one of the only big ones that would be separating us. So would do you mind giving us a, and, and I'll post the video with this podcast on the website, but do you mind giving us kind of an overview of what Sir Anthony Buzzard's position is and kind of what scripture he uses? First of all, it's important to note that his position, very distinctly different to mine, is that Satan and demons are personal beings. That is, he believes that they are beings with volition, that have their own agency and are as real people as human beings. Now, I'm saying very specifically Satan and demons are personal beings is his position because when it comes to details on exactly what they are, he is not so clear and frankly, by his own acknowledgement, isn't very certain and doesn't think it's very important. So he won't commit, for example, to the idea that they are necessarily fallen angels or that even Satan is necessarily a fallen angel and he won't commit to a specific position on their origin because he says he's not sure and he doesn't think that's so important. And, okay, honestly, I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't think it's strictly necessary to get into that level of detail in order to make his case, even if I think that does weaken his case. So that's his position on what they are. Now, he arrives at his position through a fairly, and I don't think I'm being judgmental here when I say this, a fairly superficial reading of the scripture. And I say superficial because he insists himself on what he calls a very literal reading of scripture. He says, it says Satan there. We all know what Satan is, so that's what he is. It says demons there. We all know what demons are, so that's what they are. And as you will have noticed during the debate, I objected to this 
on exegetical grounds, saying, well, you know, as a biblical Unitarian, that's not actually how you yourself treat the text in other ways. Anthony, like myself, doesn't believe in the immortal soul, doesn't believe that people go to heaven and hell when they die. And in order to reach that conclusion, obviously, he reads the biblical text with some subtlety. He reads it with some discernment. He reads it in its original sociocultural context, and he reads it with accurate lexicographical data. So he knows that the Hebrew words, for example, nefesh in the Old Testament and suke in the New Testament don't refer to an immortal soul, especially not in a Christian context. So as I mentioned in the debate, I view this as an inconsistency in his exegetical method. And this is, I believe, one of the reasons why his beliefs in Satan and demons have a certain number of holes in them, because he can't derive enough information about Satan and demons from the biblical text itself. So he has to, as far as I'm concerned, fill in a lot of gaps with, frankly, what I think is a, a bit of imagination. So that's his position on what Satan and demons are, and that's basically how he arrives at that position. The texts that he uses are, again, pretty much any texts which literally use the words Satan and demons in the English Bible. Now, Anthony is familiar with Greek and Hebrew. His Greek and Hebrew is well beyond mine. My Greek I studied at college. That was years and years ago, and I'm very, very rusty on it now. I can find my way around a lexicon and get my way around the biblical text reasonably well, but his Greek is definitely at academic level, and I have no Hebrew, whereas he's very familiar with that as well. And that being the case, again, I'm surprised that he doesn't apply that knowledge to the text on this subject the way he applies it to other subjects like the immortal soul, for example. If he did, of course, then he would recognize, as I demonstrated in the debate, that these terms in English don't map very well to the actual Greek and Hebrew terms that we find in the Old and New Testament. And I demonstrated that with citations from a number of lexicons. A number of the citations I gave him from the lexicons actually did surprise him. There was a one time, for example, you would have remembered when we were debating the wilderness temptation, he wanted me to provide a citation from a lexicon for this specific Greek word. And he asked me to provide that definition because he thought it would weaken my case. And it actually said exactly what I said it said, and that weakened his case. And he was surprised. He asked for another lexicon. I cited another lexicon as well, and it said the same thing. So again, I think that with regard to this particular subject, I think he is treating the biblical text in a very superficial way, and he isn't digging as deep into the lexicography on this subject as he is on other subjects. And again, I think if he did, he would realize it would weaken his case. And again, I think that this is one of the reasons why his belief in Satan and demons isn't very coherent. There are holes in it because he just doesn't have any data. It's like, for example, asking people very specific questions about the immortal soul. Very quickly, they have to resort to speculation because they just can't find anything in New or Old Testament which actually describes this thing called the immortal soul or what it's supposed to do, this kind of thing. So that's Anthony's position on what Satan demons are. That's the way he arrives basically at the conclusion. And those are the rough overview of his texts, the texts he uses. Of course, his favorite texts are, number one, the wilderness temptation of Christ because it gives the appearance of an individual conversing with Christ. The passage in Job, because again, it gives the appearance of a being called Satan debating in person with God. And the Satan passage in Zechariah, because it gives the appearance of, again, an individual having a conversation. And passages in Revelation, which likewise give the appearance of 
say, you know, being a personal being and exercising volition and agency. Now, what I don't think he realizes, and I think I made this point to him in the debate, is that the number of instances of this happening is incredibly small, given A, the size of the Bible, and B, even the number of references to Satan. This is not actually what we would expect. This is literally no more than the kind of references we would get to a personification like wisdom in the Old Testament, for example. And it's remarkable that given that Satan is supposed to be a personal tempter who comes to people and tempts them to sin personally, and of course the wilderness temptation of Jesus being, as far as Anthony is concerned, the prime example of that, we don't find that anywhere else in the entire Bible. And of course we never find people reporting that a personal being has come to them visibly and they had a conversation with them and in that conversation they were tempted by this supernatural evil being who called themselves Satan. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't even happen to people personally. Okay, So the wilderness temptation is unique. It's sui generis. It's the only one of its kind in the entire Bible. And obviously, if that's supposed to refer to the way that people are normally tempted, well, we're reading it wrong if we think it refers to a personal being who is physically present and has conversations with people. That, that is, I think that is blatantly the case. Okay, so does that help answer that question? Yeah, certainly. And it's something that I'd noticed. And again, for our listeners, I highly respect Anthony Buzzard, but I think this was one part of his argument that was fairly weak. And as you mentioned, it's kind of inconsistent in the way that he has interpreted other passages using that methodology. And he did not want to reference anything outside the Bible to better understand terms or the stories or anything like that. Now, when it comes to disproving the Trinity, he has no problem going outside and and looking at other texts to show, well, of course the Jews or the early Christians did not believe in a Trinitarian God. But in this specific instance, he has this rigid, strict definition of Biblicism and Sola Scriptura that does not allow him to even look at anything outside the Bible to get grasp a better understanding of how Jews understood Satan and demons and things. And I thought that that was a weakness in his argument, and I think it helped bolster your argument. Yeah, thanks for picking that up. Actually, I should have really mentioned that as an omission in that when it comes to issues like dealing with the person of Jesus and who Jesus was in relation to God, and indeed in dealing with the issue of the immortal soul and people going to heaven and hell when they die. Yes, Anthony is very careful to use appropriate lexicography and he is very careful to examine deeply the socio-cultural context of the Bible and the various passages which appear to refer to, say, the immortal soul and people going to hell. And he does a very good job of demonstrating that those concepts don't actually match the socio-cultural context of the biblical texts that he's examining. It's definitely an inconsistency in his case, as you've mentioned, that he doesn't apply that method to Satan demons. Not only that, but as you noted every time I cited it, he never wanted to discuss it. He never wanted to go outside the Bible. He always insisted that we must stay inside the Bible. But of course, that led him to trouble because staying totally within the Bible, he was therefore unable to explain to me where he got this idea of who Satan is and what he's doing and what demons are, that kind of thing. He has, he's got no information 
and he can't tell me where these beings came from, exactly what they are, or how it is that they are permitted to do what he claims that they do. So for your side, like if you came to the Bible for the very first time, you didn't know anything about the social historical context, you didn't really know anything about first century Judaism or second temple Judaism, you know, you might come across these texts and feel like these are about actual literal beings, you know, reading it as a 21st century American. So we'll start with the book of Job. Why is the beginning chapters of Job not about a literal Satan that is an evil being? Okay, the first thing that we have to note about the Satan in Job, and this is something that I raised in the debate but Anthony didn't really address. The first thing we need to know about the Satan in Job is, of course, he never goes anywhere near Job. In other words, he actually never appears to Job, and he never tempts Job. The Satan in Job is manifestly not a tempter. He is a most a tester or a trial, but he is not a tempter. Not only that, but Satan has remarkably little agency in Job. How do we know? Because he's always going to God to ask God to do things to Job. He wouldn't have to do that if he had the power to do them himself. Then, of course, we find out that in the text, when Satan goes away from out of God's presence, we find who is it that strikes Job? We always find it's God who strikes Job. Not only that, but when we read the rest of the narrative, we find Job and Job's wife and Job's friends always cite God as the origin of the misfortune which falls on him. In other words, Nobody in the book of Job seems to know anything about a supernatural evil being called Satan who tempts people. Satan doesn't tempt anyone in the book of Job. Satan doesn't actually do anything to anybody in the book of Job, let alone Job. God is the only person who brings all the misfortunes, and Job, his wife, and all his friends persistently attribute all the misfortune to God. So we're left kind of wondering, what is the function of this figure? And this is where I argue that the figure here is didactic. It's a teaching tool. It's not a personal being. Now, there are various views on what this figure is. It very much depends on the interpretation of the sons of God in the beginning of the chapter. Personally, I think there's a strong case that you can make. The sons of God here refers to the community of the righteous, the community of people who were worshipping God at the time. And I think it is reasonable to make the case that this is a disaffected member of the community a man who comes to God because he is jealous of Job. This would explain a lot of things. It would explain why this man is not confronting Job. It would explain why this man doesn't have any power over Job. And it would also explain why nobody seems to know about him except for God. So that's how I see Job. Now, you can say that the book of Job is itself parable. And even within that parable, this is a man in the community who is jealous of Job. And this, of course, is not merely my interpretation. This is a a rabbinic interpretation, as I'm sure you're aware. Again, even some of the medieval rabbis, living at a time where belief in Satan and demons was rampant, totally interpreted this as a member of the community who was jealous of Job. They had no apologetic reason to do so, but that was just a natural reading to them. So this is not a a reading that I've dreamed up myself. And this is a reading, again, you can find it even in some Christian commentaries as well. But the point is that, as I mentioned to Anthony, The Satan in Job doesn't do what Christians who do believe in Satan say that Satan does. And that does require some explanation. So from my point of view, every time that we went to Job, I felt very comfortable. 
I was very satisfied being there because the Satan in Job does everything that I would expect a human Satan to do, but Anthony couldn't explain why the Satan in Job isn't doing everything, or indeed anything, that a supernatural evil Satan would be doing. So getting back to the question of if I'm an American, of course, which I'm not, but if, okay, if, I'm, if I'm a 21st century unchurched person, okay, somebody coming to the text for the first time, yes, if I read in my English Bible translation that word Satan, of course, that English word, even for an unchurched person, would bring a lot of baggage with it, and I would be biased, okay? I would probably start to assume this was a supernatural being, but I'm also willing to guess that I would have some pretty serious questions about why this guy isn't doing what people always tell me Satan does. If I'm lucky as well, I will find that my Bible, maybe if I'm using a very good Bible like the New English Translation with its excellent footnotes, I might find that my Bible has some footnotes explaining that the Hebrew word which is used in here and commonly translated Satan, scholars dispute whether it really should be a proper name here or whether it should be translated as a noun, since the noun itself simply means adversary. And then I might start to think, well, if it just means adversary or enemy, well, that makes a lot of sense. That means it doesn't necessarily have to be a supernatural being like a fallen angel or something like that. So, yeah, that's how I see it. Yeah, it, going back to rabbinic interpretation, even in like going through yeshiva, the rabbis would, you know, in kind of in reference to Christianity, would say, well, there's only one place you could kind of make that argument, and that was in the beginning chapters of Job. But them, uh, the rabbis in yeshiva would say that is such a small minority view in uh, Judaism that it, you know, it's like 98% of the rabbis basically say that, no, this is not a personal being. Mm. Uh, so you're certainly right. Uh, going into the medieval period, and that was still the view that it was not a literal personal being. There are several parts in the Old Testament, and Satan, like the Hebrew word, means you know, an adversary. And uh, the, one of the first places we see this is in Genesis when uh, the patriarchs are fighting over the wells, right? The first one. One of the whales right. is called Sitna. So Sitna is kind of the first time we see some kind of Satan term. It just means that there, there's adversity, and that's the reason they call that well Sitna. But uh, right, is that is that the verb 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 form or a verb derivative? Right. Yeah. And then I'm uh, not sure we, of the Hebrew, so I have to let you guide me on that. Yeah, and then there's other places too, right? That they don't always translate it as Satan. We get when the uh, angel goes to stop Billam and the talky-talky. Oh, in Numbers, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, Numbers. And the uh, angel is an adversary to Billam who is trying to yeah. curse the Israelites. So Satan is doing something good there. And then we also see that again in the book of Samuel and Chronicles. Whenever in one verse it says God enticed David to number the Israelites. And then there's another place where it says Satan enticed David to do a census and number of the Israelites. So we have in the Old Testament this, you know, at least derivatives of Satan, whether it's Sitna or the angel adversary or later Satan that's explicitly mentioned. Do people who take Satan as a literal being use any of those as proof for their position, even though it uses the same Hebrew word? That's a very good question because obviously that passage in Numbers is a passage that Anthony deliberately did not go to precisely because it's very obviously the angel of the Lord 
God's obedient angelic servant, who is described as a Satan. And the noun there, of course, is used to describe the fact that he's being an adversary to Balaam, as you mentioned. So obviously, Anthony is very well aware of the fact that that word is used in contexts which refer either to obedient angels or to mortal agents of God who are fulfilling his purpose. And given that is the case, he is very well aware that you can't just point to the word and say it must necessarily refer to this supernatural evil being. With regard, of course, to that passage in the Old Testament that you mentioned about David being moved by Satan to number the people, I actually brought him to that passage and I demonstrated that there's a very broad consensus in the scholarly literature that in that passage in Chronicles, what is actually happening is David is threatened by an enemy nation. It's the enemy nation that is the adversary. Now, the reason why they reached that conclusion is, as you say in one passage, it says God moved David to number the people. Very importantly, it doesn't say that Satan tempted him. It says that a Satan provoked Israel. In one passage, it says that a Satan provoked Israel, and that caused David to number the people. So let's just actually bring up that passage now because I have a note on it. So in First Chronicles 21.1, we read, an adversary, and of course the word there is Satan, and this the New English translation rightly translates it an adversary, because it's a general noun, an adversary opposed Israel, inciting David to count how many warriors Israel had. That's a very important passage because it says what happens there is the adversary is not tempting anyone, and the adversary is not even acting directly against David. The adversary opposes Israel, and as a consequence, David numbers the people. And the New English translation makes the point that, well, very obviously what is happening here is an enemy nation is rising up against Israel, and that's why David numbers the people, because he fears the possibility of war. Now, obviously, that makes sense in the context of a very mortal enemy. In the parallel passage, of course, we have God moving David to number the people. We find that God moved David to number the people. But, of course, we don't find that God tempted David. And the, the movement there is very clearly referring to the fact that God provokes David by sending up an enemy against Israel. Going back to the kind of the Old, Old Testament and the very beginning of the Old Testament, we have the serpent, right? And the, the serpent is often used that I've seen by people who believe in a literal devil or, or Satan. And it's and it's also referenced again in Revelation, right? That old serpent and devil. And rabbinic interpretation has always been that this is a representative of the evil inclination. Some of the rabbinic teachings are saying that yes, this was a snake, but it represented the evil inclination that is in, in people, and, and it's not a personal being. It's our desire to not do good, it's our desire to sin, and it's nothing more than that. How would you interpret that serpent in Jesus? Yeah, now that that's a very good point because you probably remember that I raised the issue of the evil inclination and arguing, of course, that Satan is the evil inclination, especially in the New Testament, and Anthony challenged me to find that evil inclination anywhere in the Old Testament 
And of course, I pointed him directly to Genesis 6, where the evil inclination is specifically referred to as causing the evil in men's hearts and resulting in their bad actions. And he seemed genuinely surprised and actually said, yes, that is, uh, that is a very good passage. And I was astonished that he actually wasn't aware of that, that evil inclination, which is, as you mentioned, standard rabbinic interpretation and rabbinic concept, attributing evil to the human heart and the natural inclination of humans to, to do their own will. I was surprised that he was so unaware that that actually derives directly from the biblical text. I suspect that he thought it was a post-biblical rabbinical development, which is why he dismissed it. Now, in terms of the, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, you can read this a number of ways. And yes, I think you can read the serpent there as a personification. I think there is legitimate warrant for reading it as a literal serpent, partly because the serpent is described as more subtle than any of the beasts of the field. It seems to identify the serpent as a literal beast of the field. Secondly, because I think there are instances of animals being used by God to perform his will, not just Jonah's great fish, but also the donkey of Balaam that God caused to speak. So I don't have any problem with it being an animal there. But of course, I'm very, very well aware that some people say, yes, it is an animal. But of course, Genesis 3 is an analogy or an allegory. It's not actually a literal event. I don't think it's a literal event, and I'm totally happy with it being a literal serpent. But either way, even as a literal serpent, of course, it very obviously does represent the evil inclination. And we know that because of the parallel in the passage itself, where after that temptation, we are told, and this is very, very famous passage, of course, that a lot of people would know, that Eve saw, she coveted, and she took. So a three-step process of temptation. The temptation is presented. The process of dwelling on that temptation and justifying it intellectually is cited, and she coveted, and then finally she took, which is when the action takes place which is paralleled, of course, as you would be aware, in, in James, where we are told that evil arises from the human heart and then it conceives sin and then, of course, it brings forth sinful acts. So the parallel is very, very clear there. And, we, and as you would know, I mean, James is preeminently describing that rabbinic understanding of the Yetzirah, the, the evil inclination, in exactly the way that, of course, the rabbis later would. So that's how I see it. It doesn't really matter whether you think it's a literal serpent or not. It ends up in the same place. It is emblematic of and representative of the evil inclination, which is not only the point I made to Anthony about the serpent in Eden, but exactly the point I made to him about the serpent in Revelation, which is why I said it is called the old serpent. It's the same old thing which has always been the trouble, the same problem all along. And of course, as I mentioned in Revelation, it has grown to become a much, much bigger problem. And I see this as absolutely natural because the whole point is that because people don't deal with the root of the sin later on, it becomes much worse. So we see the little snake in a garden one minute, and if you don't deal with it, it ends up as a world-devouring beast in Revelation. That's how sin works. If you don't deal with it, with the inclination when it emerges the, the first time, and you don't rein it in, then, of course, it just grows to cosmic proportions. Uh, there's one more sticking with the Old Testament that I want to cover that's in the Old Testament is at least, you know, reading through like the King James Version and kind of seeing some footnotes there. Every time it refers to demons, it seems to be referring to a false god. I've seen arguments mainly from Orthodox Christians that that's literally who believe that, you know, literally demons exist 
their argument is, of course, these are demons. They're creating false gods that entice people away. I don't think me and you share that view, but I do find it interesting that each of these demons is referring to a false deity that, you know, the Canaanites believed in or neighboring religions believed in. You want to cover that a little bit? Yes. Now, this is something that, of course, I brought up to Anthony on the subject of demons. I wanted him to show me demons in the Old Testament, which, of course, he was quite reluctant to do for the very obvious fact that it's extremely difficult to find them there. And when you say demons as in false gods, again, this is a point that I raised with Anthony. The Old Testament, of course, does not have a word for demons in that sense that Anthony is using. It doesn't even use that. The best Anthony could do would be the evil spirit, for example, that comes on Saul. But of course, he didn't even go there because, as I mentioned, heading that argument off, the evil spirit there is sent by God, which is a very awkward passage if you're going to try and argue that that evil spirit is some kind of demonic being. So that's 1 Samuel 16, 14, which I raised. Now, this means that the Old Testament doesn't really have a demonology. It doesn't even have words for demons. So what do we mean when we talk about the Old Testament referring to or using the term demons to refer to the false gods of the heathen? What we mean is that during the intertestamental era, the Second Temple period, after the Second Temple had been built, after the Babylonian exile had ended, and prior to the New Testament era, when the Old Testament was translated from what would have then been Aramaic, if not actual Hebrew, into Greek, the Greek word or a couple of Greek words for demon, mainly daemon and daemonion, were used by the Jewish translators of the Old Testament to render specific words in the Old Testament. And the words that they were translating were Hebrew words referring to the false gods of the heathen. So the first time we find Jewish translators of their own Bible using a Greek word for demon to refer to things in the Old Testament is when they are using it to refer to the gods of the heathen. And those gods of the heathen were gods that they very obviously believed did not exist. They believed they were false heathen gods who were just imagination. And that's exactly what the Old Testament says of them. Why did they use that word? Because in that time when they were living, that was among the Greeks themselves a word for a deity. Because the Greeks didn't have this concept of a daemon or a daemonian at that time, which was an evil being. To them, a demon or a daemonian was a spiritual being who was possibly even a semi-deified mortal or immortal soul of a previous mortal human being. And they didn't have this concept of demons as evil spirits, certainly not fallen angels who went around under the bidding of an evil being called Satan, tempting and doing bad things. They believed that a demon or a daemonian or a daemon was a quasi-divine or semi-divine being who was a kind of little god, wasn't necessarily evil, and in fact may even be benign. So it's important to note there that when we're talking about demons in the Old Testament, we're talking about the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament written during the intertestamental period, which only used that Greek word or those Greek words daemon and daemonium for the false gods of the heathen which did not exist. Now, I made that point very strongly because, as I pointed out to Anthony, and which he never really addressed, the New Testament in several places explicitly uses that definition of demon. So 
we find Paul, for example, I cited Paul, I cited Luke, using those Greek words demon and, and daemonion in the same context, using those Greek words explicitly to refer to false gods of the heathen. That's telling us exactly what Paul thought a demon was. So from that point of view, I think there's extremely good warrant to argue that Jewish writers of the New Testament, such as Paul and Luke, themselves still held to that view of what a demon was. For example, we don't find Paul ever talking about demons oppressing people or tempting people. We don't find Paul himself ever talking about exorcism, even though Paul talks about the use of the Spirit gifts in many capacities and talks about many of the gifts of the Spirit and talks about many of the powers of the Spirit. He never mentions an exorcist. When he talks about people who are unwell, for example, he never talks about exercising them. And he talks about Luke as a beloved physician, but he never mentions anybody in need of an exorcist. So I was able to demonstrate to Anthony that that understanding of what a demon was, was still preserved in the first century and was still current in the minds of people who wrote a significant amount of the New Testament. So consequently, I have very good warrant for my understanding of demon in the New Testament, whereas he needs to go the extra yards to provide evidence that, well, yeah, okay, so maybe Paul did use demon to refer to the false gods of the human. But, you know, he also believed in these other things who were supernatural evil beings of uncertain origin, who obey Satan and who tempt to evil and who oppress men and women with diseases. Well, he needs to go the extra yards and provide evidence if he thinks that that's what Paul actually meant by demons because Paul never says that and none of the other gospel writers do and I cited a number of scholarly sources on that particular point. And I, I believe it's the scholar Boltman who believed that the new he believed the New Testament was trying to demythologize some of these characters that we Rudolph, read. Rudolph Boltman. Yeah. Rudolph Boltman, yeah, twentieth century, around mid twentieth century. So which kind of leads me to, to the next question for you. If, if we have all, these, all this language of Satan and demons, wouldn't it have been easier for the New Testament writers just to come out and use a different term or to say there's no Satan, there's no demons, specifically referring to the Gospels? It seems like the Gospel writers could have avoided a lot of headache within the church by using different terms or what may be perceived as a better job of demythologizing these terms. Okay, now that's a good point, and... I believe they actually did, and there's a couple of reasons why. One is that, as I said, Paul himself only uses the word demon for the false gods of the heathen, okay? And he even says that, that, that a demon is nothing in the world, right? He uses the same kind of language in the Old Testament, which talks about how the gods of the heathen don't really exist. So I believe, yeah, Paul literally does say these things don't really exist. But more than that, it's the fact that why would Paul use that language why would Paul even refer to a demon as anything else other than what he believed it was? He doesn't need to talk about what it isn't. He only has to talk about what he believes it is. And then, of course, the burden of evidence is on anybody who thinks that he means something else. If I come to you and I talk to you about demons and I only ever refer to the word demon to refer to the false gods of the heathen, and I write you letters and I only use the definition of demons as the false gods of the heathen, there is no possible way that you can legitimately interpret me as referring to fallen angels or evil spirits who torment humans because I've never actually said that. And in my correspondence with you and in my conversations with you, it's clear this is the only thing I think that they are. 
So in that context, I believe that the New Testament writers didn't really need to demythologize anything because they weren't talking to people who had that mythological view for the most part. I think they were they were speaking a lot of times to, to Jews who didn't have that mythological view. When they were speaking to Greeks, the Greeks themselves didn't have the view of a demon who was an evil spirit. The Greeks themselves had the view of a demon still as a divine being, a god. And we know that because in Acts, and I cited the passage in Acts, let me just bring it up for you. Acts 17, 18, we know that the people to whom Paul preached literally believed that, the Greek people to whom he preached literally believed that demons were little gods. We know that because when Paul was preaching to the Athenians in Areopagus, we are told in Acts 17, 18, that after he had been preaching to them about Jesus and the resurrection, remember Jesus and the resurrection, he's not even mentioning demons here. After he had been preaching to them, a lot of people were confused about what he said. And they said, what is this foolish babble I want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of, and I'm reading the New English translation here, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. And the word there is the Greek word daemonian. It's literally the word demon. So we know that the people to whom Paul preached didn't even have an understanding of daemonian or demon as supernatural evil being who torments human beings or some kind of evil spirit under the command of a bigger evil spirit called Satan who tempts people and afflicts them with evil. You see what I mean? What is there to demythologize? The only thing to demythologize is to tell them, well, okay, but you've got to realize there's only one God and these foreign gods don't exist. And he literally says that. So the only definition of demonian or demon that Paul's audience knows is the definition which Paul himself specifically does demythologize. Can you see what I mean? And consequently, that's it. You would have to demonstrate that Paul is actually preaching to people who have a belief in something else, and then he fails to correct them. Now, when it comes to the Gospels, this is different. And you'll see that I had a very specific argument for this with regard to the Gospels. Now, the Gospels do contain reference to people who do believe in demons and evil spirits, Jewish people, of course, Jewish people in Judea, say maybe uh, Palestina, who do believe in the existence of evil spirits and demons as supernatural evil beings who do afflict humans with evil. And we find gospel writers referring to those people who did believe in those things. As I brought up with Anthony, there are, however, some interesting patterns in the gospel's use of those terms. First of all, we only find those terms used in the mouth of people with whom Jesus and the disciples interact. For example, Jesus never diagnoses anybody as demon-possessed. His disciples never diagnose anybody as demon-possessed. Jesus never speaks of demons himself as real beings. Even the disciples themselves, when they ask, well, why couldn't, they, why couldn't we cast him out when they were talking about trying to heal somebody? never actually speak of demons themselves as something that they've diagnosed and as as real personal beings. We never find that in their description of people's ailments. What we find in the Gospels is the Gospel writers describing the beliefs of people with whom Jesus and his disciples interacted. And yes, those people did believe in the real existence of these evil beings, but we don't find that belief identified by Jesus and the disciples. 
Not only that, but we do find, as I mentioned in the debate to um, Anthony, even in those Gospels which do cite those people referring to those beliefs in evil spirits and, and demons, we find the Gospels themselves undermining that belief in various ways. For example, as I pointed out to Anthony, the, there are times when the Gospel writers talk about Jesus conversing with somebody who is apparently demonically possessed. And sometimes they say that the demon is speaking, but sometimes they say that the person is speaking. Now, that makes it pretty clear that it's actually the person who really is speaking, and it's the person who is only believed to have an, an evil spirit. And Anthony thought this was a bit of a dodge on my part, and he brought up, for example, the case of a, what about this passage here, where it says very clearly that this, this was a, a demon who was mute and deaf. So, and, and Jesus is here speaking to the demon. It says right there, Jesus is speaking to the demon. And I said, well, you know, Anthony, if that demon is mute and deaf, why would Jesus be speaking to him? He's not going to hear him, is he? And if in this passage the demon is mute, and if in the other passage the demon is mute, then how is Jesus having a conversation? You see what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense. I don't think Jesus would bother trying to have a conversation with a demon that can't hear or speak. I think Jesus is a bit smarter than that. So obviously... The text itself is undermining the belief. There is a, a, a couple of passages also, also which I didn't have a chance to get to. But Matthew, for example, when Matthew talks about Jesus healing people and casting out their demons, he draws a parallel to an Old Testament passage which he says, this fulfilled the passage in which Jesus healed their infirmities and their sicknesses. He doesn't point to a passage that says, this is the passage which was fulfilled, which says that Jesus would heal their sicknesses and cast out their demons, because, of course, there is no such passage. And I think that's another case of the gospel writers undermining that belief. Now, next point, well, why are the gospel writers apparently accommodating this belief in any respect at all? And as I said to Anthony, it's because we have to remember who those gospels were written to and how they were used. I made the point that the synoptic Gospels were written to three different audiences and they were largely catechetical texts. Well, they were texts which were used and written to unbelievers or new believers, people who were coming to Christianity, who were still coming to understand who Jesus even was and didn't really understand all of the facts or the truth. They were people who were still being introduced to Christianity and who were in a process of instruction. So these were like, not to be disrespectful, but like Sunday school texts, okay? They were catechetical. They were designed to teach people. And they were for immature Christians and people who were new to Christianity. And Anthony objected to that very strongly and thought this was outrageous and said that, you know, these Gospels obviously have a lot of teaching them and that all these things, this is not just Sunday school. There's a lot of stuff in the air for us. I said, well, of course there's stuff here for us because the stuff that we get taught at Sunday school is for us and it remains for us even after we are more mature Christians. There's no problem there. And I found it very surprising that he would even challenge the idea of the Gospels being catechetical in this context and being instructional in this sense because in the scholarly literature there are numerous cases of them referring to the catechetical synoptics or the synoptic catechism, right? That there are it's, it's very well recognized in the scholarly literature on the synoptics that that is, was one of their primary functions. And I even pointed out to Anthony that Luke himself says he's writing to a man who is being instructed in Christianity. And he speaks of him as somebody who is 
new to Christianity and who is being instructed in the things which are necessary to understand in order to be a Christian. I mean, Luke, Luke's quite open about that, right? Right there. You can have a, have a look right there. And even when he, he talks about um, in Acts, when he's actually um, addressing the, the, the recipient of his letter. Not only that, but I also pointed out to Anthony, he said, oh, how can you say that these Gospels aren't written for mature Christians, weren't addressed to mature Christians? Why would you say? How can you possibly justify the argument that these Gospels were written for people who didn't know about Jesus or were very new to Christianity? I said, well, Anthony, why would mature Christians have to be taught all about when Jesus was born and where he was born and who his mother was? And all these details about his life. Why would anybody have to know that if they were a mature Christian? That's stuff you would expect a mature Christian to know. Of course, this is background stuff. Jesus' early life, his, his baptism, his wilderness temptation, early years of his ministry. All this is background stuff that you would expect to teach somebody who is a new Christian and is literally the kind of stuff that you do learn in Sunday school, literally. So I said, you know, does a mature Christian really need this kind of stuff? Is, is this what they need to be taught? Of course they don't. They already know all this stuff. Of course, he didn't actually have a response to that. I also pointed out, and I really think this is the kicker, when we come to John, none of that material is there. And even Anthony would have to agree that John's gospel is very obviously for the mature, learned Christian. It's on another level completely. And all the scholarship will agree that John's gospel was even written much later. Of course, it's written later. Of course, it's written later because by this time there is a generation of mature Christians who would appreciate and be ready for a much deeper exegetical treatment of Jesus' teaching. And that's why, of course, John is, John's gospel is very largely Jesus' teaching and illustrative exposition of it. As I also pointed out to Anthony, which again he did not address, in John, Satan and demons virtually disappear. No one is possessed of a demon in John. There are no exorcisms, there are no demons, there is no demonic possession. The demons have disappeared. Where do they go? Why do they disappear? Because mature Christians have put away those childish things. They know that does, that stuff doesn't exist. John speaks of all the healings that Jesus did and only ever uses the language of material afflictions and illnesses. Jesus healed people. He cured them. He made them to see. He healed their blindness and, and their muteness. And again, I, this is, uh, I think, an extremely strong argument, which is, I believe, one of the reasons why Anthony didn't actually address it. So yeah, on the one hand, when it comes to why didn't they de demythologize, I think Paul did demythologize exactly the mythology of the people that he was speaking to. Why didn't the Gospels demythologize? I believe they subtly demythologized when they were speaking to an audience who they knew did not need to be taken over that line completely and knew people whose beliefs could be accommodated to an extent. But as I believe the Gospel of John shows, people who in the beginning believed in Satan and demons as maybe literal supernatural evil beings were expected to put away those beliefs. Those beliefs could be tolerated when you're learning about Christianity and, and you're maybe an immature believer with some weaknesses and some, some doubts, but the community will gradually bring you into to a better understanding because mature Christians don't believe in that stuff. And that's what we find in John. I really believe that harmonizes incredibly beautifully with all the, the data that we have. And one thing that I think you will notice is that Anthony never actually gave that same kind of 
holistic, harmonized overview of all of the texts together. And I think that that explanation that I've provided has extraordinary explanatory power for the evidence that we see, whereas Anthony, as I think you could see, was really proof texting, jumping from one text to another, relying on assumption every time he landed there, and never bringing everything into a cohesive whole, which is why when I challenged him on these points, he either had to budget or just simply not address them. So does that make sense in terms of the question that you asked? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I would definitely encourage everyone to watch that debate that I have linked up. And it, it flows really nice with what Jonathan is, is speaking about. And I want to ask one more question before we jump to the next subject. Um, why does it matter whether we believe Satan, devil, demons are literal or personifications? Is What, what impact on our daily life does, does this make? Okay, that's a very good question. And again, this is the point that I raised with Anthony. It's actually a point that I raised when I gave my, my opening speech. I think it gets right back to Jesus' talk of good fruit and bad fruit. And Jesus said that good teaching brings good fruit and bad teaching bears bad fruit. Now, if we look at the history of belief in Satan and demons as literal supernatural evil beings who tempt and afflict humans, can we identify any good fruit? Now, I challenged Anthony to provide me with any good fruit, and he didn't answer. I think he just preferred not to answer the question because it's extremely difficult to demonstrate that that belief provides any material or even spiritual advantage. On the other hand, we can see dramatically clearly the evil fruit of those doctrines in many places and in many times. It doesn't matter if we're looking at the early modern witch hunts, which killed just an appalling number of people, at least 40,000 people, all derived from the idea of witches and supernatural evil and demons and, and Satan. So that was obviously an evil fruit. Or even to the modern day, in the modern era, not just people in Africa, tribal people in Africa, believing in witches and ex trying to exercise people and executing people that they believe to be possessed, but people in modern day America dying because other people are performing horrific, I can only use the term pseudo-exorcisms, I don't know how this is supposed to be an exorcism, horrific acts on them trying to cast out demons and literally killing them. Okay, I, I don't see that there's any value in this uh, whatsoever. You would have to demonstrate that this is a better way, at least that this is a better way to deal with temptation and sin. I think that's extraordinarily difficult to do because, for example, the New Testament never even tells us that exorcism is a way of dealing with anything. Okay, Paul, in, in, for example, absolutely never cites it as a way of dealing with anything, either sickness or temptation. On the other hand, we know ourselves from personal experience that when we are tempted by ourselves and our own physical desires and our own thoughts, we know exactly what that feels like and we know exactly what we need to do and we know that restraining our thoughts, removing ourselves from temptation, taking other physical steps and spiritual and mental steps to guard ourselves against that temptation, that works. And that produces good fruit. And of course, it doesn't hurt anybody. It certainly doesn't result in anybody being killed. Now, here's the point as well. As I raised to Anthony, and, and I think, again, this is the point he was really weak on and did, did not want to answer. I was extraordinarily surprised he actually did answer this. I asked him if he could tell the difference between being tempted by his internal temptations his natural temptations, and being tempted by Satan as a supernatural evil being. 
And he said, no, he could not tell the difference. And I think that says it all. Because if you can't tell the difference, then I think Satan is a solution looking for a problem, right? What's his function? He's not doing anything that we can't do ourselves. And if you can't tell the difference between temptation from yourself and temptation from Satan, I think you need to very seriously look at the question of, well, is this thing real or not? And I made exactly the same point with demons and demonic possession. I made the point that there are no medical practitioners out there who are thinking when somebody comes to them with an illness, well, of course, we better check if it's a a demonic being first because, you know, that's the thing that could happen. Nobody bothers with that. And, you know, neglecting demons as a possible source of illness has never actually hurt anybody. Nothing happens. Literally nothing happens. To all intents and purposes, the world works as if Satan and demons simply don't exist. Yeah, thank you. And one of the, to me, the the most proof text is going to be the letter of James. And I think that is the best book as far as even self-reflection, right? You know, you're the fault of sin. I myself. So thank you again, Jonathan, for going over this debate, and I'll post it. I recommend all listeners go watch that debate. So now we'll we'll switch over to our next topic, which I'm pretty excited about because I had there for a while. I thought I was the only one in our community that subscribed to Christian anarchism. I just want to give a little bit of background about myself and how I arrived to subscribing to those beliefs, and then I'll turn it over to Jonathan. For me personally, our community, Jonathan's and my community, already kind of lays down the foundation of non-participation in politics, takes a non-violence stance on military, including police officers, things like that. I always struggled with these personally. didn't quite make sense until what helped me was I studied to become a certified public accountant, also studied economics to become an investor, as well as I'm an attorney. So I started looking at this and kind of realized that the Christians may be on to something just from a moral standpoint. And I started following some economists that were anarchists, such as Robert Murphy, who takes kind of a Rothbardian view, who is also very religious. Bob Murphy's known for his Christian beliefs. And so I started reading a little bit more about anarchism in the Christian community. And that's when I came across Tolstoy, who at least made me more comfortable about this. One of the things I had struggled with was Romans 13, which uh, Jonathan will get into. But I think I've found a way to understand Romans 13 that still allows for Christian anarchism. And that's kind of the trajectory. Our community laid the foundation with its doctrinal stances and then me understanding the laws of economics and, and the law as well finally made me realize that this religious stance makes so much more sense once once you kind of see the, you bring the receipts, right? There's definitely evidence that nonviolence tends to move society and culture a lot further. And uh, some of the ones I point out would be Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and they all, in fact, Gandhi went to, I believe it's South Africa and lived on in the Tolstoy commune of like a Christian or uh, anarchism before he went back to India and started the movement to peacefully break away from the UK. And of course, Martin Luther King brought civil rights to the oppressed minorities. And they did this kind of through this nonviolence. So it, that to me, that brought some evidence that this 
Christian anarchism is subversive and works very, very well. Jonah, how did you arrive at your current stance of Christian anarchism? From my point of view, of course, as you mentioned, the Christadelphian community has always had an extremely strong stance on its rejection of the state and the belief that believers should not become entangled in the state or indeed subjected to it in so far, uh, personally as a servant of the state, that is, joining the government in any capacity, either in the judiciary or the executive or in the legislature. So, of course, in our standard statements of faith and accompanying doctrines to be rejected, we insist that Christadelphians should not be involved in the government in this way. This includes jury service and voting. Now, jury service and voting are, are issues which are a little more debated, I would say, in our, in our community than the others, because some people believe that voting doesn't necessarily make me a servant of the state, or being on, a, on the jury doesn't make me a serv- necessarily make me a servant of the state. They see these as civil roles and exercising civil rights and even responsibilities. Personally, I take the more conservative stand. I w- would refuse jury duty, and I've always refused to exercise my political franchise to vote. But the point is that I was raised in the community where these were already standard beliefs. And they emerged partly as a result of the early Christadelphian response to the American Civil War, in which Christadelphians were very determined that they should not get involved because they didn't they believed it was not right to fight for the state, even though of course other Christians were arguing that this was a, a just cause. I think we were right to do that because there is an extremely I would say not so much a slippery slope but an absolute tar pit when you start justifying war on the basis of just cause, you suddenly find that it's enormously convenient to justify the wars that you want. And I absolutely believe that Christians should not wage war. Now, having said that, the Christadelphian community at the same time was not averse lobbying government. In fact, ironically, I think we did more to lobby governments and apply political pressure on governments without voting and without taking advantage of our political franchise in our earlier years than we did in our later years. In particular, when it came to the Jewish people, we lobbied long and hard for their defense, to the British government in particular, for their defense. Not enormously successfully, it has to be said, because the British government was extremely hard-headed on that point. So I was already raised in a community in which these beliefs were fairly standard. And that strong belief in separation of church and state, absolute wall between state and church, and non-involvement of the believer in the apparatus of the state. And I think that's a very good position to hold. This also was partly, it has to be said, a result of our community being a member of the Radical Reformation and a Restorationist sect, a Restorationist Christian sect. So we believed that the Protestant Reformation hadn't gone far enough in examining all of Christianity's so-called orthodox teachings. Maybe traditional teachings would be a better way of saying it. And being restorationist, we believed that there had come a time when Christianity, as it became a state religion, had become seriously corrupted and corrupted not just in terms of doctrine, but by its involvement in the state. Of course, the watershed moment for that is Constantine. Not that Constantine himself did very much, but rather Christians align themselves with Constantine, reoriented Christianity dramatically. And that, as you would know, That's known in the literature as the Constantinian shift. Not so much when Constantine did things, but rather when 
Christian leaders and Christian communities did things to align themselves. A lot of people have a very poor understanding of this history. Constantine didn't really do very much in terms of Christianity at all. It was more Christians allying themselves and aligning themselves with Constantine to gain political advantage. And I realize, yes, there's a debate in the literature about the extent to which the Constantinian shift actually took place, but I think that that's a separate debate, and I think there's still plenty of historical evidence for it. So that was the community into which I was raised, and that was my background. Now, that is explicitly a Christian anarchist position, as you would know. Now, it was never framed to me or described or articulated or defined to me as a Christian anarchist position, and I believe very much so that, that one of the main reasons for this is that the early founders of our sect, who were largely English, Scottish, and early North American, did not think of themselves in terms of anarchism, because to them, anarchism meant something different. In those days, especially in the late 19th century, anarchism was, it has to be said, very much associated with revolutionary action. Tolstoy was an exception. He was a Christian anarchist who believed in if not complete pacifism, certainly in non-violence, which Christadelphians also believe in. But anarchism at that time was not commonly associated with non-violence. It was commonly associated with violence, particularly revolutionary violence. And it has to be said that there were European anarchist groups and anarchists who literally did perform what they believed were uh, revolutionary acts, violent acts, as part of their agenda. I mean, we famously know, of course, that World War I was triggered, at least in part, by an anarchist attack on Archduke Ferdinand. So I believe that especially our early Christian sect, the Christadelphians, found it necessary to describe themselves in terms which were very, which very strongly differentiated ourselves from the state and made it very, very clear that we held that anti-state position whilst steering clear of identifying ourselves as anarchists, largely for branding reasons. Okay, I think if anarchism had had a different meaning and there'd been a more broad uh, understanding and acceptance of Christian anarchism, things might have been different. But I think that that's why we didn't call ourselves Christian anarchists and why we didn't refer to our beliefs as Christian anarchism, even though we could read Tolstoy and pretty much check off everything that he wrote as, yeah, that's what we're teaching okay so i think that's why it was never taught to me in that way or described to me in that way but honestly i see that largely as a matter of branding as you would know our community has always emphasized very strong the kind of mutualism and mutual aid that we find not only in the new testament but that we find in the writings of anarcho-mutualists such as for example prudon and in the scholarly literature on the New Testament, you'll find the early Christian communities cited as anarcho-mutualists or and sometimes as anarcho-communists, specifically for their emphasis on mutual support and aid, which has always been a strong part of the Christadelphian community because we don't want to put ourselves in the position of being vulnerable to the government. We've always needed to maintain that separation and independence from the government. So does that help answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. Even today, anarchism is not very good branding. And just to give a little bit of history for our listeners, really, as Jono mentioned, the anarchism in Europe really gave a bad name. There's two generations of anarchists. The first generation were more peaceful. They thought that they could convince people through, I guess, philosophical speeches, but 
peasants really didn't have time for it and did not convert to their subversive cause of kind of a peaceful anarchism. So then there was a second generation of anarchists in Russia who said that, you know, the first generation anarchists clearly didn't do anything. They didn't even remotely moved the needle and that's when they started with the violent acts you know they even killed the Tsar of Russia in St. Petersburg and that brand of anarchism kind of really went wild through the news media and to this day when people think of anarchists they think of violence like here in the United States kind of a contemporary thing a lot of people view the Antifa who some of them not all of them but some of them have referred to themselves as say for example revolutionary anarchists and whether rightly or wrongly, people have associated anarchism with violence, but that is definitely not what me and Jonathan are proposing. It's non-violence, mutual aid, charitable actions that provides a system without the need for the state, which kind of goes into what about Romans 13, right? It talks about subjecting yourself to the state. How do you synthesize that with your Christian anarchism? Okay, good question. Now, in order to link that question back to what we were talking about before, I just want to make a point about anarchist branding, a point in particular that I have to keep on correcting when I have discussions with people, even other Christians, especially Christadelphians actually, on anarchism. I get this pushback, but how can you advocate for anarchy? Or, but anarchy is chaos. Or, why would you want anarchy? And my response to that is always, anarchism is not anarchy. These are literally two different words. Anarchism is not lack of order. It's not chaos. It means lack of rulers, lack of hierarchy. The Greek word here is not about lack of order. It's about lack of hierarchy. Having said that, of course, that leads me to Romans 13 because Romans 13 is about order and law, but still rejecting hierarchy. Okay, and now I'm going to have to explain what I mean by that. So I'm going to read Romans 13 verses 4 to 6 for the background. This is the key part of Romans 13, and I'm reading in the New English Translation. It starts in verse 4, quote, For it, now this is referring to the Roman state, the, the government, we would say, For the government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be in fear, for the government does not bear the sword in vain. It is God's servant to administer retribution on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath of the authorities, but also because of your conscience. For this reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants devoted to governing. Now, out of those four verses, people typically read these words. It is necessary to be in subjection, right? They read pretty much only that when they come to Romans 13. And they say, oh, Paul says, Christians need to obey the government, and they ignore the other parts. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, this gets back to obeying law while being free to disobey leaders. And people might say, well, how, do you, how are you going to obey law or maintain order while disobeying leaders? This is the point. Christians obey the laws of the state not because rulers tell us to, not because we believe that those rulers have a legitimate authority over us, but because those laws are enforcing what we understand to be good. And I believe that's what Paul says. How do I prove it? Let me read verse 5 again. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection to the government. Note this. 
not only because of the wrath of the authorities, but also because of your conscience. Obey those laws. Why? Because you know they are the right thing to do anyway. See what I mean? This is not telling you to acknowledge the Roman state as your leader or as your God. On the contrary, Paul goes on to say, the authorities are God's servants, devoted to governing. So, this is why he says we also pay taxes. So, let's have a look. Paul assigns two roles, just two roles, to human government. One, to maintain a modicum of human public morality, I'll say, human order, to punish the wrongdoer. It is God's servant to administer retribution on the wrongdoer. Three times in these three verses, Paul says that the government is God's servant. And I'm emphasizing that because Paul emphasizes that, and it maintains the point that the government is not our authority. God is our authority, and we are God's servant, and the government is God's servant. That means the government is not over us. The government is on a flat plane along with us and the rest of God's servants. Paul describes that in very, very clear and precise terms. He emphasizes three times, it is God's servant for your good. It is God's servant to administer a retribution on the wrongdoer. God's servants devoted to governing. That's basic administration. Paul permits the government to have two legitimate interactions with the believer. One, to punish you if you break public order. The kind of rules, he says, that even your conscience tells you you should obey. Two, to collect taxes for public works. And yes, Paul was thoroughly aware of the corruption in the Roman taxation industry, but just like Jesus before him, he said that what is Caesar's should be given to Caesar. So Paul only assigns the government two roles in the life of the believer, and none of them are roles of authority. One, maintaining the kind of morality which, Paul says, your conscience tells you you should be obeying anyway. Two, taxes because you're giving back to Caesar what is Caesar's and it pays for public works. And yes, regardless of the corruption in the public taxation system, that money was used for public works and Paul took advantage of that like everybody else did. Now, how can we prove that that was Paul's position? We can prove it because whenever it came to a clash, a conflict between God as Paul's authority and the state as Paul's authority, Paul chose God. Paul explicitly broke Roman law when it contradicted the law of God, and so did the apostles. So, for example, we know that when Peter and the other apostles were brought before the Jewish authorities in Acts 4.19 and Acts 5.29, and they were prohibited from preaching Jesus because, as the Jewish rulers knew, they could get these people into a lot of trouble for preaching an unregistered and illegal religion. And when they were strictly commanded not to do that, they didn't say, oh, yeah, okay, well, I mean, you know, the, that, that's a fair point. The Roman, Roman government doesn't allow us to preach unregistered and unrecognized religions. We'd better not do that until we've gone through the paperwork. They didn't say that at all. They refused to recognize the authority of the Jewish rulers or the Jewish law, the Roman law that outlawed new religions. In Acts 4, 19, Peter and John replied, whether it is right before God to obey you rather than God, you decide. Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than people. Now, Paul explicitly took advantage of his rights under Roman civil law because he believed he had the right 
to exercise civil law to his advantage, especially in the furtherance of the gospel. So in Acts 22, verses 25 to 28, when Paul is about to be beaten without having first had a trial, Paul reports to the centurion, I'm a Roman citizen. Do you think it's legal to beat a Roman citizen without a trial? And the centurion, of course, is extremely concerned. And he calls to the commanding officer and says, this man's a Roman citizen. Are you aware of this? And the commanding officer is extremely concerned himself and says to Paul, well, you know, I bought my citizenship with a lot of money. And Paul says, yeah, but I was born free. And of course, the commanding officer and the centurion are horrified and immediately let him go because they know it's illegal to beat Paul as a Roman citizen. Now, why is Paul doing this? Paul is not doing this because he's acknowledging the Roman emperor as his leader. Paul is doing this because he knows it is immoral to beat someone without a trial. And he is deliberately exercising a civil right which upholds a basic law of his own conscience, something that people would acknowledge is fundamentally moral. You don't just beat people for no reason. Likewise, in Acts 25, when he's brought before the Roman governor Festus for judgment, and again, he's breaking the law, and Festus knows he's breaking the law by preaching, and Paul doesn't care. Paul is not going to apologize for preaching. And he says, I, I've done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you know very well, Acts 25.10. Then Acts 25.11, he says, if I am in the wrong and have done anything that deserves death, I'm not trying to escape dying. But if not one of their charges against me is true, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Again, he took advantage of his Roman citizenship. So he said, look, if I have done anything guilty of death, yeah, if I've broken the law and I'm guilty of death under the law, go ahead, execute me. But otherwise, you can't. And of course, Festus couldn't maintain the charges brought against him. So Paul makes the point, of course, in Acts 28, 19, that he was actually forced into appealing to Caesar because what was being done to him was unjust. So as we can see from Paul's own life, he preached the gospel even though he knew he was preaching an illegal religion and he knew that this was an act which was illegal for which he could be punished. And he said he was perfectly willing to be punished by the state, but he was not going to obey that law. So I think this demonstrates very clearly that for Paul, one, the state is God's servant. That means it's on the same level as the believer because the believers are also God's servant. And Paul says that three times in those three verses in Romans 13. Two, Paul recognizes that the Roman state only has two legitimate interactions with the believer. One, to maintain a modicum of public morality. And Paul says, yeah, you should obey the laws of the state because they're the kind of laws that your own conscience tells you are the laws. And note that he's only talking about those laws that your conscience agrees with. How do we know? Because every time there was a law that his conscience disagreed with, he broke it. And secondly, he says the state's job is to collect taxes. That's it. That's the only room that Paul gives to the state. Now, people might say, yeah, but okay, do you think any modern anarchists, even especially secular anarchists, are going to take that as a legitimate argument? And I say yes. And if you ask me how, I will say to you, how many anarchists do you know who obey traffic laws? How many anarchists do you know who obey basic laws like don't murder people, don't commit wanton violence, don't kidnap people, don't violate people's rights and commit assaults? Anarchists make the point that despite their much maligned name, they are very much people of public order because they believe that the state is not necessary to main public order because people should be good to each other anyway. I believe anarchists actually fundamentally understand what Paul is saying. What I think people 
misunderstand is that being an anarchist doesn't mean you have to be lawless and you have to break all the laws. And unless you are acting illegally, then you are not being a real anarchist. Being an anarchist doesn't mean acting illegally. It means not recognizing the state as the ultimate arbiter of your conscience. And as I said, you'll struggle to find anarchists who say, oh, yeah, I don't care about the law. I break all the laws. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I shoplift and I, you know, and I drive recklessly and I break the traffic laws. They obey those laws. And if you ask them why they obey those laws, they say, what do you mean, why do I obey them? Because I know they're good for people, because I know they help establish good public order. And they would tell you, just as I'm telling you, I don't obey them because I think the state is necessary. I don't obey them because I recognize the government's authority over me. I do those things because I'm a decent human being. And I believe that is exactly the argument that Paul is making in Romans 13. And I think I can prove that very, very clearly from the fact that he specifically refers that to the conscience. Yeah, and this is something I, you know, when people ask me about my anarchist belief, I, I point out to the, the fact that nearly 100% of their daily life is without the state, right? They're doing things. Yep. I, they they already are anarchists in a sense because yep. they they go to the store, they pay for it, and they would never, even if the state didn't exist, you know, these these uh, shop owners or people they know, they would never steal from them, right? So they're right. already living in this model of an anarchist society, and uh, basically the only difference is they, uh, some of them still have this uh, statist belief. Uh, thank you for, uh, you know, slicing and dicing what uh, Romans 13 actually means. Uh, and uh, we're, we're running out of time, so we're going to have to cut it off here. Is there any additional point before we go that you want to make, and what resources would you recommend for Christian anarchism? Well, of course, you can refer people back to the video that I have on my own channel, but I would say a very good starting point is the book that I believe I've introduced to you before by Alexandra Christianopoulos called Christian Anarchism, A Political Commentary on the Gospel, published in 2013. That is a very, very good book, quite comprehensive. It started off as a PhD thesis, was eventually published. And it's a very accessible book with a lot of, particularly a lot of commentary specifically on biblical texts because it's written explicitly from a Christian anarchist point of view, um, Alexandra himself being uh, a Christian anarchist. And that's why I think it's particularly useful for the believer because it's dealing with those texts, not just in a piecemeal way, but in a very holistic way and also discusses some of the history of Christian anarchism and relates it to the broader picture of anarchism in history. All right. Thank you. Once again, I really appreciate you going over Satan and demons and, uh, and now anarchy. And it, I think it has been a great episode, and I think our listeners will really enjoy it. And Thanks uh, thank a lot, you Cam. for coming back on the show. And God bless. Absolutely. My pleasure. God bless.